Please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Let's hear God's word together. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, then I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your holy word, we thank you for it. We pray for wisdom, guidance, and grace to not say what we should not say and to say what we should say. Lord, preserve me from exalting the flesh. Lord, may I hide behind the cross that Christ would be glorified. Lord, give us attentive minds and hearts as we are all tired. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. want to speak tonight on the essential elements of the gospel the essential elements of the gospel. First of all, we see Paul's message. At the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, he comes to the, the, the church at Corinth and he declares the gospel. And he says here, I declare unto you the gospel. So first we want to see Paul's message. Paul reasserts, reaffirms, declares and reminds them of the central facts of the gospel. He wants them to remember this because they're drifting. They're entertaining false teaching that is undermining the very foundations of their faith. And Paul is a wise pastor and he can see the danger that is lurking. There were many problems in the church at Corinth and we've been looking in For some of the Sundays, we've been looking at some of the problems in Corinth with them going to idol temples and eating meat sacrificed to idols and other things like that. But even more fundamental than the division over Paul and Apollos, even more fundamental than the arguments about the Lord's Supper and marriage 
even more destructive than the immorality and the carnality that were rampant in the church is this issue of the gospel. Those were major issues, and Paul deals with them very thoroughly. But this one Paul saves for the last. And Paul saves it for the last because it was so absolutely crucial. There was a teaching in the, in, the, in the church of Corinth, a teaching which he refers to in verse 12, which was stating that, Christ, that there is no resurrection of the dead. Not necessarily all the people, but at least some of them. Somebody is bringing up this doctrine. And Paul is saying, this is not a minor issue. This is a major issue. Maybe these were Gnostics who held to the, the spiritual was everything and the physical was evil. Maybe. Maybe they were like the Sadducees who denied the resurrection of the dead. Maybe they were influenced by them. But we know that the, the resurrection was a not a popular teaching in the day in which Paul lived. When Paul was preaching at Athens in Acts 17, and when he finished the, the sermon, at the end of his sermon he says, because he has appointed a day in Acts 17.31, he says, because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, wherefore, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. What was the result? And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. There was mocking because of the resurrection. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. The resurrection was not a popular teaching among the, the Greeks, especially. When Paul was preaching to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he asked King Agrippa in verse 8, Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? In other words, King Agrippa was one of those common, everyday Greeks that was questioning the fact of the resurrection. Verse 23, Paul, in his sermon before Agrippa and Festus, says that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus, this is, this is a, a ruler, a, a governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. He said, Paul, you're crazy. You're insane. And why? Because of the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead was not a popular truth. It was considered ridiculous and foolish to the common man. Maybe this is the reason why Hymenaeus and Philetus in 2 Timothy 2 declared that the resurrection was past already. Today we have liberals who deny the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the body. We have people called hyper-preterists that say that all the prophecies in the, in the New Testament have all been fulfilled. Even the resurrection, even the judgment, have all been taken place in 70 A.D. 
It's a heresy. And we have heathen or just regular people on the street that will deny at times the resurrection. Though, of course, in the, in the South, there's more people who accept that. Paul says this is not a minor issue. It's not a side issue. The gospel hinges on the resurrection. The gospel is at stake. And Paul says, let me remind you of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. It's the good news of what God did to bring about our salvation. Paul lived for the gospel. He lived to preach the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, it says that he says that he was separated unto the gospel. He was set apart for the gospel. He also says in Romans 1 that he is not ashamed of the gospel, that he's not scared, he's not ashamed to speak the word of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Well, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. And he says, Which I preached unto you. He's reminding them. He's reminding them that he preached it. It was some years back, maybe some, some time back, but he's reminding them of what he preached. This was the apostolic message. This is what they heard at first. He says, which also you have received. Here's faith. They believed the message. They accepted it and they received it. And wherein ye stand, here is continued faith. He says, that's what's keeping you going. That's what's keeping you is the gospel. This is the standing ground for the true believer. It is possible for us to forget the importance of the gospel and to be shaken in our hold on it. If the gospel gets a hold of us truly, it'll never let us go. But it's possible for us to be wavering like these Corinthians and to need to be reminded. He says, by which, in verse 2, you also you are saved. This is the way of salvation. We are not saved by any other, neither is there any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Christ and Christ alone. One way, one message, one hope, and one Savior. He says, By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. That word keep in memory is, can also be translated to hold fast. If you hold fast what I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is not thinking that they're going to lose their salvation. He realizes that true faith perseveres to the end. But he's telling them like the author of Hebrews told the Hebrews. He's encouraging them not to look back, not to drift away, not to go back, but to go forward, to hold fast to the gospel. And then he says that warning at the end of verse 2, unless you have believed in vain. Paul is saying to the Corinthians that it's a possibility that their faith is spurious, that their faith is not real. He's saying it's possible that, that they might give up on their faith because their faith wasn't real. However, 
I believe Paul is, has confidence in them for the most part and believes that, which is the reason why he's giving them this letter, that they will persevere with the gospel. He, he has that hope. But this could also refer to the fact that if what they are embracing is true, if not is true, because Paul knows it's not true, but if they are holding to the, to the false doctrine that there's no resurrection of the dead, then by implication Christ is not raised from the dead, and he says that in verse, in verse 12 and onwards. And verse 13, it says, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Paul isn't questioning the fact of whether Christ is risen from the dead. He's saying, logically, if you take your doctrine of no resurrection to its logical conclusion, it means that Christ isn't risen from the dead. And so your faith in Christ is vain. Your faith in Christ is empty. And so he's saying, This is the message I've preached. But is your faith vain? What gospel are you holding on to? What gospel are you clinging to? Is it the gospel of Christ? Or is it another gospel? So he says in verse 3, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Notice what he says, I delivered unto you first of all. This was probably one of the first things that Paul talked about in his preaching. But first of all, I believe, carries the idea of first importance. Pastor Jeff's been preaching on conscience controversies. And he mentioned that there are primary doctrines, there are secondary doctrines, and there are conscience controversies. Conscience matters. Now, a conscience matter, we can differ and be brothers. A secondary matter, we can differ and be brothers. But a primary doctrine, we cannot differ. We must not differ. And so Paul is saying here, first of all, in other words, the most primary of the primary, one of the most primary of the primary, is the doctrine of the gospel. Of course, there are other doctrines that are primary doctrines. We think of the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, and other doctrines we could possibly add to that. But the doctrine of the gospel, Paul says, is one of these primary doctrines. And he says, I delivered to you what I received. Paul and the other apostles weren't They weren't innovators. They weren't being creative. They weren't making up stuff. It's kind of like Moses when he was up there in the mountain. Up there on Mount Sinai in the howling wilderness with the rocks and the thunder and the clouds. And God gives him a message and God tells him what to do. And he comes down from the mountain. And here's Moses, the man who has the learning of all the Egyptians and a great and mighty man. 
And here's his men, Bezalel and Aholiab, who are skilled with all these skills. But they don't make up the tabernacle however they think it's right. They don't do it however they think is best. They, don't, they aren't using their creativity in a way that's beyond what God has told them. But they're following what was shown them in the mountain. They did it according as the Lord had commanded Moses. And that's what the prophets did of old. When they brought their messages, they weren't just telling what was on their minds and on their hearts, but they were telling what was on God's heart and God's mind. They were speaking, thus saith the Lord. They were messengers. They were ambassadors. And Paul is saying, that's what he is. He says, I am just the mouthpiece of God. He said, I deliver to you what I received. I got it from God and I'm giving it to you. It's a simple thing. He was a representative for the risen Christ. And so what was Paul's message? How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Young people, if you don't remember anything else today, I want you to remember three things. And that's the threefold elements of the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the three elements of the gospel. It's a simple message, simple truths, but profound and life-transforming. Christ's work is central in all three of these. It's not that something about me. It's not something about Paul. It's not something about the Corinthians. But it's what Christ did. This is one of the key areas the Christian faith is different from all other faiths. Other faiths and religions tell you what you can do to be saved. But the Christian faith tells us what God did and what Christ did for you to be saved. Here we see... The doctrine of grace versus works. The doctrine of God versus man. Like Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So let's look at these three elements here today. First of all, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins. This is such a central fact in our faith the Lord Jesus kept telling the disciples that he had to die he said I'm going up to Jerusalem to be crucified and to be killed and to be slain and to rise again the third day but they didn't understand him they 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 were even Peter rebuked him and told him be it far from thee Lord this shall not be unto thee you see the Jews were not expecting a dying savior This was not a part of their theology. It was part of their scriptures, but not a part of their rabbinical training. They expected a conquering king who would deliver them from the Roman conquerors. They expected an earthly savior to deliver them from Rome, not a savior from sin dying abandoned on a cruel cross. That wasn't in their picture. The cross Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, was a stumbling block to the Jews. 
But on the other hand, for the Greeks or the non-Jews, the cross was a message of foolishness. They saw it as a foolish message that one should die on a cross for the sins of men. They mocked it and ridiculed it. And we've seen already, partly because it came with a message of resurrection. Paul says Christ died for our sins. I deserve to die. You deserve to die. We have broken God's holy law. Romans 6.23 tells us what we have earned. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus took our place and died in my place. We call that substitution. In my place, the song says, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21 talks about this, and some call it the great exchange. There is, Paul Paul states, he hath made him, who is, God has made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That means he took my place and suffered the punishment or the penalty that our sins deserved. On him was placed the guilt of the sin of his people, which is why the Lord Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Suffering there the wrath the agony, the separation from the Father, the wrath of the Father that we deserve. Well, Paul says this was according to the Scriptures. This was part of God's original plan. It wasn't his backup plan, but it was original plan. All through the Old Testament, we see constantly that the blood of, of a sacrifice is necessary to purge away sin. You see that from the beginning. Even when God is blessing, when God, first of all, is, 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 is clothing Adam and Eve after they have sinned, He takes the, blood, the, the skins of animals. The death of animals is taken to cover their sin, right? But then after that, He is not pleased with the sacrifice of Cain, but he is pleased with the sacrifice of Abel. He's not pleased with this fruits and vegetables, but he is pleased with the blood sacrifice of a lamb. But this goes on into the very the very cult, we could say, the, the religious worship of Israel in the Old Testament. God embodies it in Israel's worship that blood sacrifice is necessary for the remission of sin. That even the the man who is offering that sacrifice sometimes would put his hands on the head of the animal, identifying himself and his sins with that animal. Sometimes the animal would be burned. Other times it would be cut into pieces. Sometimes it would be sent out into the wilderness away from the people. Different ways of picturing the wrath of God being poured out upon Christ for our sins. Those animals, Hebrews says, 
Those, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It, it's impossible. But Christ, in the end of the ages, He has come. And He has come to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Amen. This was God's plan. In Genesis 22, there was a wonderful, wonderful story. As God called Abraham to offer up his son, Isaac, on an altar, on a mountain that he was going to tell him about. And Abraham takes his son and they're going up the mountain. And I'm sure some of you know the story. And his son looks at him, a trusting and loving son. And he says, Father, he says, what? I, here I am. What, what do you need? He says, Here's the wood, and here's the fire, but where is the lamb? It was a good question. And Abraham couldn't hardly answer, but he said, God will provide for himself a lamb. There was the word of faith and the word of prophecy, that God would provide the, the Isaac, in that story, God provided a ram caught in the thicket to, to replace or, or take the place of Isaac so that he would not be taken, so that he would not have to die. But in the real story, in the, in the final story, God the Father sends, sends his Isaac, Jesus Christ. And there is no ram caught in the thicket because Christ is the Lamb. There's other scriptures that speak of Christ's death. We'll look at two of them tonight. It says, according to the scriptures. Psalm 22 and verse 15. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. And then Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes. We are healed. Here we see that substitution for us in his sufferings. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He died for our sins. And then we go on to verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. We see clearly that the Messiah was to die in the Old Testament. It was according to the scriptures. There's more passages Daniel 9 refers to the fact that the Messiah was to be cut off, but not for himself. But these will suffice for today. 
Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The second truth that Paul says is part of the gospel. The second element is that he was buried. He was buried. The Lord Jesus was buried. He didn't rise again on the cross. He didn't rise again being carried out of the city like the man that he came up to that that buyer or that that coffin as the guy's being carried out and the widow mother is there and Jesus touches the man and he rises again. Jesus didn't rise again on his way out of the city. He was out of the city when he died. But he was really buried. They posted a guard. They sealed the tomb. This testified to the fact that he really and truly died. It wasn't a fake. It wasn't a swooning. He really and truly died. But there's more to it. The apostle refers to the burial of Christ in a very important way. And I think it's important for us. When Christ was buried, in a sense, and in a real sense, he was done with our sins. Like that song says, buried he carried my sins far away. Amen. Think of that story that of Pilgrim, at Pilgrim's Progress as he looks up to the cross on the way and his bundle of sins falls off into the empty tomb. Christ was not dealing with sins anymore. They were finished. When he said it is finished, it was finished. He didn't die to go to hell and suffer more for our sins. He had already suffered all on the cross. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul refers to the burial of Christ and our union with Christ, and how that applies to our sins and our lives as Christians. In Romans 6, there he says in verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. He says a similar thing in Colossians 2, where he says, Buried with him in baptism. Buried, we share with him in this burial. The third element that we see of the gospel is that Christ rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is an essential element, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, when he says, who was delivered for our offenses, that's the cross, and was raised again for our justification. It's essential. It has to be. If Christ was not risen, we would not be saved. Wilhelmus Abrakel, a Dutch, um, early Dutch pastor, in his book, The Christian's Reasonable Service, says, this is the cardinal doctrine of the Christian religion, as salvation hinges upon faith in and confession of this truth. And he quotes Romans 10.9, which says that if thou shalt believe 
in thine heart the Lord Jesus, and shalt confess with thy mouth that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart, does it say that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins? It doesn't. Of course it includes that. It doesn't exclude it. But it emphasizes the resurrection. Isn't that wonderful? So we should see the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a central part of the gospel. This is a non-negotiable element of the gospel. What they saw was a real human person, a real bodily, bodily, real body of Christ, not a ghost and not a vision. But he says it was according to the scriptures. This was also prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament. And in the book of Acts, we see the apostles constantly referring to the Old Testament and saying, this is what was prophesied. This is that that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And we'll look at three passages that show that, that the apostles referred to. In Psalm 16 is one of the primary passages. Both Paul and Peter refer to this passage. Psalm 16 and verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Both Paul and Peter in their sermons in the book of Acts refer to this passage and they say this is referring to the resurrection. Jesus didn't see corruption. His body didn't rot. God didn't leave his soul in Hades in the place of the dead, but he raised him up. He showed in the path of life. And his flesh, even his body, rests in hope. This is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. There was more two, more passages that they quoted. One of them is in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. Psalm 2, 7. I believe it was Paul in Acts 13 that quoted this. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. There was a sense of, of course Christ was the son of God before the resurrection. But there was a sense like Romans 1 says that he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So there's a sense in which his declaration to the world of his sonship was made in the resurrection. Also want to look at Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 3. Isaiah 55 
In verse 3, this was also quoted in the book of Acts. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you even the sure mercies of David. It's that last part, the sure mercies of David. And the apostles said, this sure mercies of David is being fulfilled in the resurrection. Because God had made that promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and in, in 1 Chronicles chapter, I believe chapter 17, where God had made that covenant with David. And he had said to David, your son is going to be my son. And your son, I'm not going to take away my mercy from him. He's going to have an everlasting kingdom. And his kingdom won't end. And his kingdom will go on forever. Amen. My blessing is going to be on him forever. He's going to build me a house. Christ is the one who builds a house. He has the sure mercies of David. This is the fulfillment of this passage. And even, we won't turn there, but Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, if you look at them later, as you look at the latter parts of both of those chapters, you'll see the victory. At first, there's the suffering. At first, there's the, the, the pain and the suffering and the trial as the, the suffering servant, which is Christ, goes through the horrors and the agony of suffering on the cross. But then at the end, you see victory. At the end, you see praise. You see, you see life. You see, you see the promise of life. And you see that he sees his seed and is satisfied, that he, he has life. And there's other prophecies as well. Even Jonah, when he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, Jesus said that pointed to what he was going to do. So it was according to the scriptures that Christ rose again. Secondly, this message was attested by numerous eyewitnesses. And this is very important. And Paul says, a major part of what I read tonight was about the eyewitnesses. He says he was seen of Cephas, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 15. Then of the twelve, after that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Notice he was seen, he was seen, he was seen, he was seen. There were eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ. Acts chapter 1 says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. There were many infallible proofs. They, we can't contest, we can't controvert, we can't undo the evidence that we have. In the book of Acts, in, in the early part, Jesus told the disciples, You shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. The apostles chose a man to replace Judas Iscariot. And they chose him based on this, that he was to be a witness with them 
of the resurrection. And later on when Peter preaches in Acts 2, he says, This Jesus has God raised up of whom of which we all are witnesses. In other words, it was very important that there would be witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. In the Jewish court, something had to have several witnesses to be established as a fact. We have that in our day as well. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. What we have in the resurrection is not just a myth. It's not just an, a, a hypothesis. It's not just a theory. It's a historical fact that is proven by evidence, by witnesses, recorded eyewitness accounts. We have proof. Do you know why we have four Gospels? Some people say, well, Matthew is for the Jews, and Mark is for the Romans, and Luke is for the Greeks, and John is for everybody. And that's great. That may be true, and I like it. But why do we have four of them? Because we don't have four Romans and four Ephesians, you know, and four all of these things. Maybe a Psalms for the, for the Greeks and a Psalms for the Romans. No, we don't have that. Why do we have four different accounts of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection? It's because there's eyewitnesses, and we have in the mouth of two or three, actually four, more than four, because Matthew was there, he saw it happen. Mark was not there, but he heard Peter, and he received the message from Peter and wrote it down. So there's two. Luke, he wasn't there. He, was in a company, he accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys, but he tells us in the beginning of his book, he says, I asked all these witnesses, and I wrote it down. So there's multiple witnesses there. And then the book of John, we know John was there. He saw all that he saw. And he saw more than most people saw. If you look at the book of Revelation. That's why we have four Gospels, I believe. is because we have multiple witnesses. At least one of the reasons. So who were these witnesses? Were these people that did not know Jesus? Are you sure that they saw Jesus? Well, there was Peter. He knew Jesus. There was the 12 disciples. They had seen Jesus many times. There were 500 brethren, more than 500. And Paul says, some of them are falling asleep. In other words, there's some that died, but you can go on over there and, and ask the rest if you want. They were still there. James, the Lord's brother who wrote the book of James, and became the leader of the Jerusalem church. All the apostles, and Paul doesn't leave himself out. He said, me also. Last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Paul was the last apostle. On the Damascus road, Christ appeared to him in person. And he also was a witness of the risen Christ. So, the resurrection is not just a good guess or a nice story. These are incontrovertible facts and solid facts that we are to rest our souls upon. The third thing I want to say today is that the resurrection is the basis for Paul's indefatigable labors and changed life. 
The resurrection is what changed Paul's life. Let's read it together. He says in verse 9, I mean verse 8, And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle. We could say I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believe. Paul says, I was like somebody born out of due time. The word there in Greek means, can be translated a miscarriage or a premature birth. Paul is saying that he didn't have the gestation the other disciples had. He was just, he just came out early in a sense because he didn't have the preparation. He didn't have the time with Christ that the other disciples had. While others were sitting at the feet of Jesus hearing his word, Paul was preparing and training to be a church persecuting Pharisee. But all of a sudden, on the Damascus Road, things absolutely changed. Paul says he's the least of the apostles. Well, some of the Corinthians definitely despised Paul, and they thought he was the least of the least of the least of the least. Maybe he's kind of being sarcastic, but he really recognizes his own sinfulness here. He's not saying that his authority is less than the other apostles. He's not saying that his message is any less important. He's not saying that his gifting is less than theirs. He, he definitely is not saying that, but he's saying, my past life, I shouldn't be an apostle. Look at what I did. I persecuted the church of God. He recognized his own unworthiness. He was humble and, and, and realized his own sinfulness before God saved him. If you look at Acts 8 and 9, I mean, we don't have time really to do that tonight. But if you look at what Paul did, he was going into the, the churches and into the houses and, and arresting men and women. He was consenting to the death of Stephen, the martyr, the man of God, the deacon, and, and the evangelist. Holding the clothes of the people who were stoning him to death. Later on, breathing out threatenings and slaughter, it says, against the people of God, he goes to Damascus with letters <coughs> excuse me, with letters from the high priest to bring people bound to Jerusalem. So he has a plan. And Paul's plan, we can say Saul, because he was Saul of Tarsus back then, but Saul's plan was to destroy the church. Saul's plan was to do everything he could against the name of Jesus, to wipe out the name of Jesus, the people of Jesus, off the map. Paul recognized. He said, I was insolent. I was a blasphemer. And I was a persecutor. Paul said, I was the chief of sinners. That's in 1 Timothy 1. Let's look at that together. 
1 Timothy chapter 1. He says there in verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. I was violent, he says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul recognized his own sinfulness. And what Paul says here in 1 Timothy is really connected because it says the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. And then in 1 Corinthians he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. You see that threefold reference to the grace of God. God's grace was what made Paul what he was. The grace of God is what made Paul the persecutor into Paul a preacher. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul is not making any excuses here. He's not saying that using the grace of God as a crutch or as an excuse. He's declaring it as the basis for every good that has come out of his life. Paul is an apostle. He is entrusted with the greatest message the world has ever heard. He is an ambassador for Christ. How is this the case? How did this Christ-persecuting, church-persecuting blasphemer and murder of Christians become an apostle? It was the grace of God that entered on the scene. By God's grace, Paul became what he became. By God's grace. So Paul is praising the grace of God. What is this grace? We talk about grace. What does Paul mean by grace? Well, Paul is the apostle of grace. So when Paul talks about grace, he knows what he's talking about. In Romans eleven six, Paul makes it clear that grace and works are distinct, that grace and works are basically opposites when you talk about earning salvation. Romans eleven six and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. In that sense, Paul, when he speaks of grace, is speaking of it as the unmerited, or we could say ill-merited, favor of God. It's not something we deserve. Paul is a preacher of God's grace. And Paul is saying that it was not my doing. I did not earn it. Paul did not pull himself up by his own bootstraps and make himself an apostle. It was God's grace. Works had gotten him somewhere, but it was far from Christ. His work had made him a Pharisee, and his work had made him a Christ persecutor. His work had made him a church hunter. And Paul's work had nothing to do with Paul's conversion. Paul wasn't seeking God on the Damascus road, but Christ knocked him off his horse or 
onto the ground, and Christ sought Paul. Grace is God doing for us and in us what we could not do for and in ourselves. We also see the the power, or we could say the sovereign nature of this grace in verse 10. It says, And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. Paul likes to use that term in this passage, in vain, in an empty way, in a futile way, in a, in a useless way. The grace of God was not empty. It was powerful. God sought Paul, and Paul did not seek God at first. This was not just a suggesting grace or a hinting grace or a helping grace. It was an almighty, irresistible, transforming grace, and it was not in vain. God sought Paul, and he had, he, he made sure that he got him. Sometimes we go hunting, and we miss the deer. Sometimes we go fishing, and we miss the fish. Sometimes we try to provide for our family, and we don't, we don't get the money in. Praise God when he does provide, and he does. He has been faithful. But man... God sought Paul, and God, in his grace, got a hold of Paul in his sovereign grace. Thirdly, this grace is the working of resurrection power in the heart and life of the believer, specifically in the heart and life of Paul, Saul of Tarsus. This grace is the living power of the gospel, and I think we need to not separate the word grace from the gospel. We need to not think of grace as something separate from the gospel. Because Paul is saying here, I believe, that the gospel is really, the grace is the the gospel in action. The grace is the gospel alive. The gospel alive in Paul through the Holy Spirit. The grace that Paul is talking about is the undeserved, powerful working of God in the life of the sinner based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the grace of the resurrected Christ. This is the grace of the indwelling spirit of the resurrected Christ. It's the unbridled and irresistible spirit of God. He met the resurrected Christ on the Damascus road, and it changed him inside out. He was given new eyes to see, a new heart to believe, new ears to hear, and a new mouth to speak God's glorious gospel. This is why Paul could pray for the Ephesians. I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. That's the grace, right? Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Paul is saying that, that grace, that power of God that raised Christ from the dead, that's the grace that changed my life. In verse 11, he says, Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, 
and so you believe. He says, this is the message we preach. The apostles and preachers of the New Testament, whether it was Peter, whether it was Apollos, whether it was any of them, or whether it was Paul, the message they preached was the same. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. He said, that's the message you believed. He says, that's where you began the Christian journey. That's the message that transformed you like it transformed me on the Damascus Road, Paul says. That's the message that got a hold of your life and changed you from the inside out. That's the message that brought this grace that changed your life. Paul says, are you leaving? Are you leaving this message? Do you really want to abandon the gospel? Well, in conclusion and an application, this is a living message for us today. We need this gospel just as much as the Corinthians did. If we're believers, we need the gospel. We feed upon the gospel. If, we're, if you are an unbeliever today, you need the gospel. You need to hear the message of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sinners and rose again. Today we need to hear Paul declaring the gospel to us. It's not just a message for the Corinthians because they had some wacky doctrines, but it's a message for us. So I want to ask us some questions. Do you know and believe the gospel? Is this the message you heard and believed? Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Are you holding fast to this gospel? Is it your daily strength and hope? That's the only hope we have, is the gospel. Or are you wavering in your commitment to its message? Is something you are holding to or entertaining? Maybe it's a doctrine like the Corinthians, or maybe it's a practice like the Galatians, compromising the truth. Of the gospel? Is there something undermining the gospel in your life, your family, or your church? Do you speak this gospel to others? Or are you ashamed of it? Are you living for this gospel? Or are you living on this gospel? Is its power or its grace evident in your life? Has it changed you? And me. In conclusion, we never grow too old for the gospel. We never get too wise for the gospel as Christians. We never grow to a point where we don't need the gospel. It is our food and our drink, it is our refuge and our home, it is our joy and our delight, it is our armor in the battle, it is our medicine of our broken hearts, it is our comfort in hard and dark days. It is our all in all because it tells us of the one who is our all in all and how he has done all for us. It is ever new and ever fresh. It is a wellspring of life for both a lost sinner and an older saint. We are all, like Paul, sinners saved by grace.
We may not be able to say with Paul that we're the chief of sinners, but we sure feel like it. And we praise God for the mercy and grace that he has shown to us in the gospel. We do not deserve anything but hell, but God has showered his grace on us in the gospel. And that grace is centered in the gospel. So what is my takeaway today? Believe the gospel, live the gospel, and tell this gospel to others. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this time together. Thank you for those who listen so well and patiently. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to love your gospel, to understand your gospel. Lord, that any that do not know Christ tonight, Lord, impress on their hearts, Lord, the beauty of what you have done to make sinners whole. Lord, show them the beauty of the gospel. Lord, show us all and give us grace to delight in it, to believe it ever more strongly, and to speak of it to others. Lord, that the grace of the gospel would transform our lives in such a way that people would see Christ in us. We pray your blessing upon the rest of our night. Give us rest and strength. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 you please stand? We'll be read for our benediction, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. 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 You may be dismissed.